Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now, here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome back to Talk Dizzy to Me. I'm Dr. Abby Ross, vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist, joined today by Dr. Danielle Tate, also a vestibular physical therapist and fellow vestibuloholic. Today, we're going to dive into the basics of BPPV. We've had a few clinicians reach out to us asking for just the bare minimum when it comes to treating and diagnosing or assessing BPPV. So, Danny, take it away. I love talking about BPPV. It is, um, I think, kind of the foundation of the entire specialty for vestibular therapy. So let's dive right in. Um, for basic, basic purposes, we're not going to cover some of the more atypical or rare forms in this episode. Definitely more to come in the future, but let's keep it bare bones, simple and easy. There are two big things to remember when it comes to working with beef and BV, right? These are Ewald's laws, which there are three of them. And the fact that nystagmus always beats to the more neurally active ear. So first let's break down Ewald's laws. The first law is that nystagmus or the direction of nystagmus is directly correlated to the canal that's being stimulated, not the position of the head. So let me give you an example. If you are doing a Dick's Hall Pike test and you get horizontal nystagmus, that's indicative that the horizontal canal is being stimulated, even though we are putting the patient into a test position for the posterior canal. Just because the dizziness happens with the Dix Hall Pike and the patient reports vertigo doesn't necessarily mean that it's a positive test for the posterior canal. You have to look at the direction of nystagmus to see which canal is being inappropriately stimulated. Ewald's second law pertains to the horizontal canal. So otoconia or fluid flow towards the cupula, so away from the open end of the canal towards the cupula at the end of the um, ampulated portion of the canal is going to be excitatory. Ewald's third law states that fluid flow or otoconia moving away from the cupula or away from the ampulated portion of that posterior canal is going to be excitatory. If you can remember those three laws and you can pay attention to the direction of nystagmus and properly name which direction that nystagmus is moving in, you can pretty much figure out any type of beep and BV and have a good educated guess as to where those crystals are. Also keep in mind that nystagmus always beats the more neurally active ear. So that's not necessarily the healthy or the uninvolved ear. It's just the more neurally active ear. And that's going to come in handy, especially when we talk about horizontal canal cupulolithiasis. So with that being said, there are two different types of beep and BV. There is canalithiasis and cupulolithiasis for simplicity purposes. Canalithiasis is when there is free-floating debris in the canal. It's not adhered or stuck to anything. And cupulolithiasis is when those crystals are adhered or stuck to the cupula at the end of the canal. Now, just a couple more characteristics about canalithiasis versus cupulolithiasis. In canalithiasis, you're most often going to see a brief latency before the symptoms or nystagmus present. And in addition, the symptoms or nystagmus will dissipate typically under 60 seconds. So this is a little bit of latency and more brief symptoms. 
Now, just the opposite in cupulolophiasis, typically there will be no latency, the nystagmus or symptoms will come on right away, and they tend to last a little bit longer than canalophiasis. Which makes sense if you can picture what's going on in that canal. If the crystals are, or the otoconia are free floating, then they'll move through the canal and then eventually settle. Once they settle down at a portion of the canal because the patient has stopped moving, the fluid flow uh, of the endolymph stops moving, the pressure is no longer being changed in the canal, and the cupula is no longer being deflected to create that excitatory response. However, in cupula lithiasis, those otoconia are adhered to the cupula, making it gravity-dependent. That means no matter how long the patient stays in that position, the cupula will be deflected and inappropriate, inappropriately either stimulated or inhibited to create some sort of uh, response for nystagmus. And therefore, your symptoms and nystagmus continue on. Now, when we think about prevalence of posterior canal versus horizontal canal versus anterior canal involvement, we tend to see mostly posterior canal in the clinic and, you know, research varies, but it has determined anywhere between 75 and 95% of cases of BPPV are related to posterior canal involvement. And yeah. then as down the chain, go ahead, Danny. I was going to say, then as we kind of move down, we find that we have a little bit less in the horizontal canal, um, approximately 20%. But I think if you go back to our episode two, where we talk about horizontal canal BPPV, we had suggested that this number might be a little bit lower than what may be an actual prevalence rate only because you can have a lot of spontaneous um, uh, resolution of horizontal canal BPV just by accidentally turning over in bed. So there's a good chance that, you know, we see 20% in the clinic, but there might be more of a higher prevalence in the patient population that we're just unaware of because it hasn't been diagnosed. Um, so with the elusive anterior canal, uh, there's only thought to be about a 2% prevalence rate within uh, this semicircular canal, and that's for a couple of reasons. Um, but it might even be lower than what we are anticipating now with some new research coming out that talks about the possibility of short-arm canalophiasis in the posterior canal, tricking us to think that it's anterior canal BPV. Um, with that being said, you know, it it exists and there has been ways to treat this, but there are some other alternative theories as to what could possibly be presenting as anterior canal BPV. So um, most of you are going to see posterior canal BPV um, majority of the time. Um, be prepared for that. Absolutely. Definitely brush up on your horizontal canal treatments and also just keep an eye out for that possibility of an anterior canal BPV but don't get your hopes up on seeing that one too often. Mm -hmm. I do think that I have seen a true anterior canal BPPV. I really I have. have. <laughs> <laughs> I've, had, I've had two very specific cases um, where it wasn't necessarily the primary uh, diagnosis. It had been a posterior canal issue that over time converted itself to an anterior canal. Mm -hmm. One included treating somebody for a posterior canal, BPV canalophysis, and then the next morning she flipped her head over to blow dry her hair. 
And the second case was a woman that had posterior canal BPV and then went to work out with her personal trainer who inverted her over a stability ball for an inverted push-up. So I believe I have seen two true cases. Um, I've actually also spoke to Kim Bell out in California who deals with a lot of women that do yoga. So we've got a lot of women who are more prone to BPV who are standing on their heads. Um, putting themselves in perfect positioning for anterior canal. Uh, what about you? What did you see for anterior? Same sort of situation, actually, as you just described. But, you know, that that made me think about something else. Do you, are you a believer in limiting movement then after treatment? Yes. So that's another thing I think we should talk about because recent research suggests that we do not have to follow post-maneuver precautions. However, Um, I have found it to be a little bit more simple to follow these precautions just for 24 hours to reduce the chance of somebody converting themselves and having a bigger issue, which is also why I don't retest in the same day, unless this is a patient I know I'm never going to see again, they're traveling out of town or they're very insistent on it because I have converted people before from posterior to horizontal canal. And that is not a fun experience. I feel like you start to lose trust from your patient and it is just one extra step, but at the same time, I don't like them leaving feeling miserable or having to vomit. Yeah. What about you? I tend to shy away from saying any precautions just based on the recent research. And I, I feel that the conversion is more rare. So I'd rather have them move more freely, but I do understand, you know, if I had a patient who said, I'm going to yoga tonight, maybe I would say something. But for the most part, I find patients are pretty guarded anyway. So I'd rather not tell them more so to not move because I actually want them to start moving. Yeah. With that being said, you got to gauge your patient, right? So when the patient comes in, you take a good history and you go through your eval, you're going to have a pretty good idea of who you're dealing with. So say I have somebody who's really fearful, type A, I know is going to be terrified to lay flat if I were to tell them they can't lay flat. Uh, For them, I give them really easy precautions. I just tell them, try not to go to your hairdresser today and dip your head way back in the bowl. But otherwise, continue what you're doing. Because most of the time they come in, they've been sleeping on two pillows to begin with. Right. If I have somebody who has had BPV, they tested positive for it, and they didn't necessarily feel too limited by it. And I know they're going to be really active and doing things that they could convert themselves. I'm a little bit more insistent on it, but all I basically tell them to do is for 24 hours, don't just lie perfectly flat, sleep with at least a pillow or two. Um, and that's pretty much as far as I go, no cervical collar, no recliner chair. Um, I just basically tell them for one night only avoid putting that ear closer to the ground. Um, and for the most part, that seems like it's enough. Um, nothing, nothing crazy. But I do that just out of precaution. And then when I don't retest and I have them follow those precautions, what I like to do is bring them back two or three days later. And I use that visit to retest to make sure everything looks fine, that nothing was converted, they feel good. But then also re-educate them about BPV because I know it's a lot of information on day one. And then I teach them and have them practice how to do maneuvers at home on their own mm-hmm. while also giving them a handout and the link to our YouTube video that we created Um, so that they could see how they can make that happen in their own home. So the the second visit I just use as a way to touch base with them, make sure they feel good, make sure that they're educated about how to do their maneuvers at home, 
and make sure that we didn't um, convert anything and that there was, they're all still negative. Um, most of the time too, it's a great time to kind of transition people into maybe some additional follow-up visits because there is some more research, research coming out that says that doing a little bit of VRT um, mm-hmm. after maneuvers can be very beneficial for patients. So the first day can be overwhelming with diagnosis and treatment, especially if you've got somebody who vomits. That's never fun. Um, so I bring them back the second time and they say, listen, I feel a lot better, but I'm just feeling really imbalanced. Okay, let's go over how to do your treatments at home in case this pops back up, but let's also talk about balance therapy. So I just took a patient who might have been just a one and done visit and turned them into a multi a multi-week um, balance and VRT follow-up patient. Um, so important, honestly. I mean, you do have those cases where it's literally just BPPV and yeah. you treat it and they're perfectly fine. But I find more often than not, especially in the older population, that you treat the BPPV, they're still actually guarding or using compensatory strategies that they're not even aware of. Yeah. Uh, and once we really assess their balance further, we realize, oh, okay, let's let's do a short course of standard vestibular rehab and see if we can get you even a little bit better, more confident, more comfortable, not so guarded, freely moving, playing tennis, going out and playing golf, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. I totally agree with you. I think more often than not, I do end up assessing some things a little bit further, finding something and then prescribing some exercise as needed. Yeah. And now more than ever, I'm actually employing that technique because I'm finding that with COVID, a lot of people are not moving. Mm -hmm. So somebody that might've had a vestibular um, issue, event or dysfunction in the past, and they've compensated well because they've moved over time, have suddenly stopped moving the last six months. And now all of a sudden they're like, I don't feel right on my feet. And especially with the change in seasons and the stress of everything that's going on, I've had a lot of um, BPBV um, recurrences. So patients that have been good for a long time are all of a sudden all popping up around the same time. They are imbalanced. They feel dysfunctional and they can't figure out why the last time we just did a maneuver, I was great. And now I feel off. I don't feel right. My head feels funny. Um, so I am seeing that a lot more now in this new era of COVID. Um, so anecdotally, you know, I wonder if eventually some research will come out on this, but really interesting. I have had more recently patients say, I haven't had this in 10 years and all of a sudden it's back. Yeah. I mean, and who knows? So one thing to educate your patients about is that there are two types. There's a primary and a secondary form of BPBB primary being hit to the head jars those crystals loose, you end up with BPBB, um, concussion, hitting, I had a skier who hit her head on the ice and had that whiplash injuries. That's a primary cause. Secondary would be that it just happens spontaneously. We don't necessarily know. It's more idiopathic. But we do know that there are some risk factors. So people who are at higher cardiovascular risk, women are more likely than men, especially if they have osteoporosis or osteopenia. There's been some suggestion that um, high uric acid, uh, people who are more prone to gout are more prone to BPV. Um, There's a lot of things there that can contribute. I think diabetes is a factor. There's a recent journal article that came out about this, obviously age two. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, big time with age. Um, Vitamin D deficiency. Um, There's a big link between vitamin D and recurrences and BPV recurrences. 
Um, so it's, it's interesting to, to look at all of that and also apply to what we're dealing with now in this new age of increased stress and not moving and being stuck in our homes and not being active. I mean, I have a woman now who it sounds like she's had chronic BPD for the last 20 years and she's been doing fine, but all of a sudden now she can't do yoga three times a week like she used to, and she's not doing um, more social activities like walking and being with her friends. And now all of a sudden she's like, I don't know why I feel this way. Um, and I think it's because we have these patients are, they are decompensating. They are noticing a bigger difference in vestibular function. And now that they're trying to get back to being more active or having a lot more of a difficult time. And we are seeing these recurrences due to change in diet, not moving as much and just having these risk factors kind of be brought out with increased stress as well. Yeah. So when a patient comes in, let's talk a little bit about what you're going to hear as a clinician that will clue you in. Oh, this could definitely be B, B, P, P, B. Also, just to throw it out there, I typically will assess it in everybody because I have had instances of BPPB that don't present textbook, but mm-hmm. ends up being there and as the primary culprit of the other symptoms they're experiencing. So yeah. I think you might hear. Uh, the patient will often tell you that they experience true room spinning vertigo or some sort of shift in the room. They When they change positions, the whole room spins or shifts back and forth. Something is not steady in their world. That is a lot of times a huge indicator that, oh, this could be BPPD. Obviously, you get nystagmus with other vestibular disorders, but that is one of the main symptoms that patients will describe. And then also, you'll be able to tease out whether or not it's positional through your questioning. They'll often say, when I sit up every morning, I have to sit there for a few minutes and just make sure I'm okay before I stand up. Or every time I lay down, but then it goes away and I'm fine. Or I only sleep on my back now because when I roll over, all of a sudden it will come on and I don't want it to come on. Or I only sleep on this side because my other side bothers me more. Um, Bending over, looking Mm -hmm. up tilting their head back at the hairdresser, tilting their head back in the shower. Uh, dentist. Dentist, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, dentist is a big one too. I was thinking I need to market to uh, dental offices and yep. hairdressers because oh. they get people with vertical all the time. I will tell you, I put together in-services for both where I'll go into hairdresser um, or hair salons and I'll teach them how to be more ergonomic with standing in their shoulders and then I make them listen to my beep and BB pitch. Yeah. Same thing with dentists. I'll give them a little in-service about how they can improve their posture and avoid neck injury, and then give them a pitch on BPD, and you leave a bunch of okay. cards. So every time somebody gets dizzy when they sit up, they hand them your card, and you get a new patient. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, you will hear some room spinning vertigo, um, but then you might also have those really laid back patients where they're not too bothered. I had somebody that says, yeah, I wake up in the morning, and I turn over, my things shift on my nightstand, but then they stop, and then I'm good. Um, or I sit up, I just take 30 seconds because I feel a little funny and then I'm good. So you kind of have to tease it apart. Um, you also sometimes have to ask a little bit more prying questions. So if I ask somebody, when you lay down in bed at night, do you get dizzy? And they go, no. And sometimes I'll be like, well, how many pillows do you sleep with? And they'll go four. Why? Well, that's why you're not getting dizzy when you lay down. Um, you kind of have to pry. What is your setup? When do you get dizzy? Does it happen all the time? Could you have dizziness come on just sitting still? You want to really kind of tease out if this is purely positional or if there's another aspect or layer to it. 
which sometimes there can be. We've talked about before the possibility of hypofunction nervous vestibular neuritis paired with BPV, um, which I've seen a handful of times now, them kind of going hand in hand. Yeah. So you might have to tease apart a couple of different types of dizziness and what's causing them and triggering aggravating factors. Right. So if they have had a hypofunction due to neuritis, maybe the first couple of days, it didn't matter what position they were in. They had that room shifting or vertigo because they were experiencing nystagmus. But then as that dissipated, then they were just left with positional nystagmus. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good point. Um, And I wanted to mention too, like you were saying, you know, they might not always tell you that room spins or, or they, they may be more nonchalant about it. I had a, an older woman who had some balance issues, but never, ever, ever reported anything that would even remotely think BPPV, except for she was a woman and she was an older adult, but I didn't assess it right away started her with more standard vestibular rehab, balance focused. And then one day I was like, you know what? Let me just assess this. It's probably negative, but let me just assess it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, this woman had bilateral BPPV. Mm-hmm. I, I had a very, very similar patient. This woman was 89 years old. She was coming in for just some general balance. I hammered her with questions about vertigo. No, no, I never get dizzy, never get dizzy. And... I was like, well, we're going to do some positional tests anyways. I just want to make sure everything's good. You know, this is a very common issue. Just want to make sure we're great. And I laid her flat and she started screaming. I said, what's the matter? She's like, I don't lay flat because I get dizzy. And I was like, sure enough, bilateral posterior canal BPV from just years of avoiding it. Um, So you know what? Sometimes you just have to kind of bite the bullet and test it anyways. Sometimes people don't even know they're dizzy. I have my very laid back gentlemen that are just kind of like nothing bothers them. Everything's cool. I can lay them back. Their eyeballs can be bouncing off the screen with nystagmus. And they're they're perfectly, I'm like, are you dizzy? And they're like, no, why? They're like, your your wall is moving though. I'm like, all right, Uh, fine. (laughs) So, well. Yeah, so you should you should always test. This one of the um, more recent studies show that one in ten people um, of an older population in an urban type of uh, setting have this. Don't even know they have it. It's undiagnosed. Um, yeah. If you look at the prevalence rate of vestibular dysfunction, the older the patient population, the higher the prevalence rate. You should always check it out just to be safe. Cover your own butt. Doesn't hurt. Um, when it comes to testing, most people are familiar with the Dix Hall Pike. And on October 3rd, we'll be recording an episode that's going to talk about a way to make the Dix Hall Pike a little bit more sensitive for testing so that you don't miss out on possible BPV and get a false negative. Um, so we'll Which have to get a sneak peek to in a prior episode. Mm-hmm. So make sure you look for that. Jeff Walter will be back to discuss his recently published uh, study, an article about that. Um, but when it comes to testing, the two tests you should absolutely always do is your, your Dix Hall Pike and your roll test. Um, just quickly, a Dix Hall Pike is sitting on the mat table. I don't like to drop patients' heads off the table just because of guarding issues, um, avoiding cervical neck strains, especially if there's not a lot of range of motion. I'll use a pillow that stops by um, behind their shoulders so that they can extend down to the table and rest their head. But you have the patient sit on the table. 
turn their head about 45 degrees to the side that you want to test, have them lie down flat and have them, if you don't have goggles, have them look directly at the end of your nose and you're looking for a torsional upbeat nystagmus. So if you're looking at their eyes, um, their eyes should be twisting and beating towards the ear that's closer to the ground. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing a right Dix Hall pike, that'll be right torsional upbeating nystagmus. If it's on a left Dix Hall pike and it's positive for posterior canal involvement, that's left torsional upbeating nystagmus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, if it lasts longer than a minute, it's cupulothiasis. If it lasts shorter than a minute um, and tends to die down, crescendos up, dies down, that's canalithiasis. And then besides Dix Hall pike, Especially if you see horizontal nystagmus when you're in Dix Hall Pike, you want to do a roll test. So roll test, you're going to have the patient lie flat with their head 30 degrees in flexion. And you will have them roll onto one side first, look at their eyes, ask about symptoms, and then roll onto the other side second, look at their eyes, ask about symptoms. Now here you should have nystagmus on both sides, it may vary in intensity. So if you have geotropic nystagmus, that means the nystagmus is beating toward the ear that's down or toward the earth, and that is indicative of canalithiasis. So geotropic toward the earth nystagmus, canalithiasis. If you have ageotropic or apogeotropic nystagmus that's beating up toward the ceiling, away from the earth, that is going to be indicative of cupulolithiasis. Now, how do you determine which ear is involved? Well, there are a few ways to help determine this. For one, in canalithiasis, so you have geotropic nystagmus beating toward the earth. The side with the more intense symptoms in nystagmus is going to be the involved side. Just the opposite for cupulothiasis. So you have ageotropic nystagmus beating away from the earth. The side with less symptoms, less intense nystagmus is going to be the involved side. But you can also follow this up with another test to help you determine. Danielle, I'll let you explain baumann Yes. So baumann and I'll also explain why we see nystagmus on both sides. Um, it just in reference to Ewald's law. So I'll do that after. But so if you need to determine which side for B and BV horizontal canal, um, you can do a bow and lean, having the patient sit on the side of the table or sit in a chair. You're going to have them bow forward. You need about 120 degrees of bowing forward and neck flexion in order to put those canals in the proper position. When you have canalithiasis, when you bow forward, you will elicit nystagmus beating to the ear that's affected. Lean is when you have the patient sit up and lean their head back. When you have their head lean back, um, if it's cupulolithiasis, you will have nystagmus beating to the side that's involved. So remember, up with the cup. When you have them look up, that's for a cupulolithiasis side determination. Bow, um, you're going to be looking for a canalithiasis determination. Yes. Um, so really quickly with Ewald's laws, with the horizontal canals, I think this is interesting and a good way to basically picture why we see nystagmus on both sides, right? Because of the posterior canal, if you have one side positive, the other side negative, you're only going to get nystagmus on one side. If you think about your horizontal canals and um, the idea that there is a more neurally active ear, 
This is because you've got crystals moving around the canal that are either exciting the canal or inhibiting the canal. So for canalithiasis, for simplicity purposes, if you have crystals in the back portion of the canal, right, where they typically tend to sit, when you roll them to the side that they're affected on, if it's a right horizontal canal issue, you roll them to the right side, those crystals are going to move towards the cupula, creating an excitatory response. You'll get a nice, robust geotropic nystagmus that'll stop. When you roll them to the opposite side, those crystals are going to move away from the cupula, inhibiting that right side, which now technically makes the left side more neurally active. So you'll get a nystagmus beating to the more neurally active side, which is now the ear that's towards the ground, creating a geotropic nystagmus that is not as strong. Mm -hmm. Conversely, with cupulolithiasis, the ear that's affected, if we do the right ear again, when you roll them to the side that's affected, the cupula is heavy and bends away from the utricle, which is an inhibitory response, which gives you an apo or um, yeah, apogeotropic nystagmus beating away from the earth to the more neurally active ear, only because the affected side is being inappropriately inhibited. So that when you roll them to the unaffected side, the now heavy cupula deflects towards the utricle, making it super excited, and you get a real robust apogeotropic nystagmus beating away from the earth. So you're going to see nystagmus on both sides. Don't panic if they look equal in amplitude and severity. Just sit the patient up. Don't keep them there for too long unless you want them to puke. And then do the balancing test. Yeah, exactly. Now, in terms of treatment, I think we'll probably have another episode that dives into treatment a little bit more. But mm -hmm. also, Vestibular Dot Today has some great videos already and more videos coming up. Yes. in terms of what maneuver to choose and how to do it. So that will definitely be something to keep an eye out for. Another thing that we have on vestibular today is this great decision tree that was put together by um, an audiologist. She is now an audiologist, uh, Dr. Amy Schneider, uh, now Amy Bernstein. She uh, worked with me um, when we were up in Maryland and we put together a, a kind of an easy way to Think about how to diagnose and how to treat all the different types of BPV. So um, there is a handout with a decision tree that'll kind of walk you through how to figure out which canal is affected and which maneuver to do. Um, if you want to check that out, we'll make sure we link that in the show notes. If you're watching the video, I have it popped up on the screen here now. Um, so that resource is available to you. Just like uh, Abby had, had mentioned before, we are going to be filming some new videos on home treatments and treatments in the clinic, as well as exercises, how to determine what to do and when to do it um, to kind of make things easier for you guys and hopefully put a good resource out there with correct information that can help you with your patients. Because there's a lot of bad videos out there. <laughs> there is. There's some that are just flat out wrong. Yeah. <laughs> And then when I see people comment on those particular videos in support groups, I'm like, no, 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 no. Yes. But anyway, absolutely. that's coming. Uh, what else? Anything? I think, I think we hit everything. What do you think? I, think? I think that's our basic, our basic episode. If we forgot anything, be sure to comment, be sure to share the episode. So, you know, we'd love any suggestions that you guys um, have and want us to cover. Um, we will cover another episode on more atypical forms of BPV because um, I, I know I've seen some really funky stuff. Abby, I know you've seen some really funky stuff. 
Um, it'd be really good to cover those just so that if anything does pop up, you guys don't panic. Don't panic. Uh, don't oh, panic. That's another piece of advice. You know, if you are just getting into this and somebody comes into your clinic and you're not entirely sure um, which side you have to treat or if this is the epile appropriate or you need to do a salon or you need to do something, it doesn't hurt to try. It's very rare that you're going to do something. If it's just BPV, that's going to make the patient feel worse. Yeah, these if are any, treatments. Exactly. If anything, the patient's just going to walk out and still be symptomatic. That's fine as long as you try. And sometimes at least the patient will feel better that somebody listened to them and gave it a go. So it doesn't hurt to try. Try to help the patient. You're doing the patient more good than bad um, by just letting them walk out the door. You are more likely to fall if you have untreated BPPV. They're more likely to feel worse for a longer amount of time if you don't nip that in the bud. Um, and you can, they could move into a cupulolithiasis issue, issue, which is a lot more difficult to treat. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to BPPV, remember Ewald's laws. Remember that nystagmus beats the more neurally active ear. Make sure you're paying attention to eye movements during all of your testing. And check out vestibular dot today for those BPPV resources. There's a whole list of studies um, with recommendations. There's decision-making trees. There's patient videos. Um, we even have all the handouts for all the home exercise programs based on which side ear you want the patient to work on at home. So check it out. We'll put links in the show notes. And we hope that this was somewhat helpful, helpful for everybody. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. You know where to find us. We'll see you next week. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.